0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Now, people have to understand, one of the reasons why Guantanamo still exists is that it's a prison camp, but it's also a training camp. And this is widely misunderstood. It is a training camp. Within it, you have brainwashing going on, you have courses, training, uh, and so forth. Generally speaking, once you're in Guantanamo Bay, the way you get out is to become a double agent working for the CIA. I'm
0: Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the CIA, Mormon Mafia, and the Benghazi Killings. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9 11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama The Postmodern Coup The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, Obama The Unauthorized Biography, and co author of George Bush The Unauthorized Biography. His new book is Just Too Weird Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America Polygamy, Theocracy, and Subversion. On today's program, we discuss the origins of the Islamophobic film, The Innocence of Muslims, The Killings in Benghazi, Libya, and Mormonism.
1: Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. It's so nice to talk to you again.
0: What can you tell us about the recent Islamophobic film, The Innocence of Muslims, that set off so many demonstrations in the Middle East? What people are behind this film and the spreading of Islamophobia?
1: Well, let me say, first of all, let me just try to sum up the argument. Uh, The first thing I have to say, though, the premise of all this is there is inside the U.S. federal government a network which has escaped the attention it would have deserved over the years. And this is the Mormon mafia. Uh, People may be familiar with the CIA Mormon mafia, the FBI Mormon mafia. You can find uh, cases uh, for example, where Hispanic uh, FBI agents in California have sued the Bureau because they were being uh, discriminated against by Mormon agents, right? The, the traditional uh, demographic breakdown of, of the FBI, the FBI breakdown traditionally was the two large factions, maybe we should put it that way, were Mormons and Jesuits, Jesuits, typically law graduates of Fordham University and similar institutions. The Mormons, uh, you know, very much from Mormondom, right? From Brigham Young University and and other places. Uh, And in the CIA, it's probably even more. And the way you get this Mormon mafia is young uh, Mormon males, as Mitt Romney did, are sent abroad to work as missionaries, right, Romney went to France. They come back knowing a foreign language, not not very common in the United States, right? and they come back knowing some pretty exotic, offbeat languages. Uh, they are also uh, straight arrows, right? They they practice clean living. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't take drugs. They don't womanize. At least this is what they claim, and this makes them, in many ways, ideal candidates. So um, there's a there's a kind of an inside track on CIA and FBI recruiting. I think J. Edgar Hoover certainly had a hand in it, uh, at a certain phase on the FBI side, but you can also see, uh, others. And the one that I would point to most of all is General Brent Scowcroft, uh, for many years, Kissinger's right-hand man. Uh, he was the National Security Council director under, uh, George H.W. Bush. He was very important in many, many Republican administrations. He's, uh, He's the guy who was sitting in a doomsday aircraft on 9-11, which obviously is, is worthy of, of uh, research, which it has not gotten yet. But uh, it's, it's clear that, that Brent Scowcroft, as a very active and very uh, convinced Mormon, was doing everything he could to recruit uh, people into this uh, CIA Mormon mafia. And as we can see, if we have time, the uh, Mormons were... Uh, how can we say it? They were decidedly soft on fascism and Nazism during the 1930s, which mimicked, uh, the attitude of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was convinced that the communists, of course, the Soviets were the main enemy, uh, Nazis and and fascists were, were not good, but this was not the main thing. And the, the Mormons were willing to go along with that. So I would posit the existence of a Mormon faction across the government, across the intelligence community in particular, State Department too, to some extent, I'm sure. Uh, and they have a vested interest now because they know that if Romney goes to the top, their careers will be crowned by bigger and better promotions than they could hope for any other way. And equally important for such people, they want their religion vindicated. They, they feel that, and this is one of, the, one of the features of Mormonism we have to stress as we talk about it, they have a narrative of persecution they have a cahier de doléance, right? gravamina. They have complaints. They've been mistreated. Joseph Smith should have become dictator of the United States in 1844. Instead, he was murdered by those ungrateful Gentiles, those damned Americans, as they say in their uh, literature at various points. So we can expect that this Mormon mafia will act in favor of Romney. I think that's, uh, that's very fundamental. It's a tight-knit, bitter... Cult with a history of persecute. The persecution, of course, was real enough. The causes, however, are a little bit more complex than what what Mormons might say. Uh, But they they want their man in. Uh, the The entire Mormon Church went on lockdown on the last Sunday of September. They had a worldwide day of prayer to get Mitt Romney elected. And of course, prayer, as Brigham Young says, prayer is good. But you gotta you gotta get out there and do things, right? When you need baked potatoes, prayer is not enough so this is the background now what i'm what i'm looking at in benghazi the the film is to to package benghazi for the world to understand it right the the broader world we, we can we can clearly see that based on the film you had pretty big demonstrations in 25 countries and even more cities and that's the big ones the really big ones were in egypt on that afternoon of september 11th in pakistan in various European cities all over the world, there were demonstrations that were specifically about the film. So let's look at the film. But what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to hold in mind is, look now for the Romney campaign, look for the CIA Mormon mafia, and you'll see that we we find it right away. But now, let let's finally get to the film. The film is important. The Republicans are running away from the film for reasons that you're gonna hear right now. The film is important because it is the basis of demonstrations in 25-plus cities in many countries across the world. If we go to the people who made this film, we come across first uh, a little non-entity, a, a patsy, the so-called Sam Basile or Akula Akula. He is a uh, an ex-con. He's a, a drug uh, uh, pusher, convicted. He's probably a police informant in the drug world. He's out on parole— Uh, His position is very precarious. He is a Coptic Christian. So that's Sam Basile or real name, something like Akula Akula. He is the one who has taken the heat, right? He's the one who's been put back into jail for violating his his parole conditions. However, the person who owned the facilities where this film was made, such as it was, and the person who got the permit— to make the film, which I guess you need. Uh, and then the, uh, the, also the, the person who uh, is the, the chief executive officer of something called Media for Christ uh, is is a, a person called Joseph Nasrallah. Now, Joseph Nasrallah is also a Coptic Christian, right? This is a monophysite Christian religion that exists in the Nile Valley, right? It's in Sudan also, but it's about 10% of Egypt. So these are people... Who have lived they've coexisted with Muslims for a long time and they know that that the provocations are not a good thing which makes this such a uh, such a, a strange thing for a coptic christian to do now this nasrallah leads us right to the matrix of who created the film in other words we can understand the film if we just follow nasrallah a little bit if we follow nasrallah for example on september 11th 2010 where do we find him we find him in a demonstration in manhattan near ground zero and it's the demonstration against the mosque, right? The Ground Zero Mosque and Islamic Community Center. And you'll remember that was used to whip up hysteria uh, before the congressional elections uh, in uh, August, September, October of, uh, of 2010. So Nasrallah goes there. And this is a demonstration sponsored by what is generally known now as the Islamophobia Network. If you go to the foundation... Uh, the relevant one is the um, Center for American Progress, which is sort of the progressive wing, maybe center left of the Democratic Party. The, the, the uh, Center for American Progress has a whole study. It's about 125 pages on the Islamophobia network. Now, you probably know some of these names. Pamela Geller is one of the most uh, prominent. There are other people. They appear on Fox News. There's Walid Faris. We'll get to him in just a minute also. Uh, the, The dominant personality, however, of the network is John Bolton. And indeed, at this demonstration, which is the sort of a centerpiece for the case I'm trying to make, you've got Joseph Nasrallah attending and giving a speech. You've got Pamela Geller acting as the chairwoman. You've got all these other people, you know, inveighing against the horrors of Sharia law and so forth. The most prominent speaker at that demonstration, who appeared by videotape, I guess, was John Bolton. John Bolton had been UN ambassador under Bush. He is a top advisor to Romney. He is likely to be Secretary of State if Romney becomes president. John Bolton has the inside track to take over the State Department. And this is typical of the neocons that surround Romney on the foreign policy side. He's got nothing but neocons. He's got Bolton. He's got Robert Kagan. He's got Dan Senor, the spokesman for the, the uh, occupation in Iraq, who was the handler for uh, Paul Ryan. You might have seen Senior spinning in the spin room uh, last uh, last week when the, the debate, right, the the Ryan uh, Biden debate took place. Uh, lots and lots of uh, neocons around Romney, but John Bolton seems to be the top dog among these neocons. So. I would argue, just based on this simple analysis, right? We go from the film to Joseph Nazralla to the Islamophobia network, and inside the Islamophobia network, this is clearly right now mobilized in favor of the Romney campaign. There are people in there who are, to a greater or lesser degree, also Israeli assets. You've got Steve Emerson, you've got all sorts of others. But the ma- the main thing is that this is now part of the Romney campaign, and um, the the underlying architecture of that is that uh, Mitt Romney and Bibi Netanyahu of Israel have been the closest of close friends since 1976, when they both worked together at the Boston Consulting Group. They have mutually assisted each other's careers. Bibi gives Mitt political advice. Mitt gives Bibi financial advice. It's a wonderful symbiosis. Uh, uh, Netanyahu is doing everything he possibly can to get Romney elected because he's been promised that if that happens, BB will get veto power. He will be able to dictate U S policy in the middle East. And, and Romney promised that in a Republican debate, uh, much earlier, uh, this year. So I regard the film as a typical provocation from a group of Islamophobic provocateurs who are, you know, tied hand and foot led by the top foreign policy guy of the, of the Romney campaign, Bolton. And, uh, Remember, this is the group that did the mosque, the anti-mosque in Manhattan campaign. And if you go to the, uh, you know, the Bay Area Rapid Transit or the uh, Washington Metro, the New York subway, you're going to find these posters with this stuff about how Muslims are savages, right? That's also the same group. That's the same small group. Pamela Geller, the Islamophobia Network, they have various, you know, specialties uh, this guy Nasrallah, is the Copts. Walid Farès is the Lebanese Maronite Christians, and so forth. But the top dog is uh, is Bolton. So look at the film as uh, the the creation of an atmosphere in which an ideological explanation can be applied to what's going to happen in in Benghazi. But again, the film is important in itself because it shows that they hate the Americans in. You know, twenty-five cities or twenty-five countries across the world. Okay? Now, on then to Benghazi.
0: I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the CIA Mormon Mafia, and the Benghazi Killings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What do we now know about the September 11th attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, and the killing of Ambassador Stevens? The attack was not carried out by protesters, but by a well-informed and armed group, right?
1: Right. Now, let's, let's also go through this. Uh, what you see is the CIA uh, essentially heavily implicated in the people that killed Ambassador Stevens and also the people that failed to defend him. Uh, and and this, this, I think, uh, it, 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 what it makes is a, uh, a conclusive, a circumstantial case that forces inside the CIA wanted this killing to happen. And they wanted something tragic, something big to happen so they could get an October surprise and then use it to carterize Obama. Remember, Obama was concocted, according to a Jimmy Carter uh, printout, right? This was done really by David Rockefeller, Spignu Brzezinski, Samuel Huntington, Joseph Nye, the so-called soft power trilateral commission group. They had uh, Obama ready, and uh, in in many ways, this scenario works best for Wall Street. If Obama does go down, they want Obama to go down, right? And that's, I think, what a lot of people in Wall Street, because uh, you know that that gives them a a, a better uh, starting point for the next phase of austerity and and oppression that they wanna have. Let's just start with the most obvious question, uh, Ambassador Stevens. Now, I'm afraid Ambassador Stevens was uh, very heavily involved in contacts with terrorist groups in that um, famous corridor from Benghazi to Derna to Tobruk, which I wrote about, I wrote an essay uh, March of uh, 2011 based on the West Point uh, report analysis that the city of Derna in particular Uh, had more suicide bombers and and heavy-duty terrorists per capita than any place in the world. They beat uh, larger cities in Saudi Arabia, but they beat them on a per capita basis. Derna is uh, the most violent nest of fanaticism anywhere on this planet. Uh, Ambassador Stevens had already been there as vice consul to the Benghazi consulate in 2008-2009, and he was already in close contact with these groups, the groups are left over from the Sanusi Brotherhood. The Sanusi Brotherhood was a group of quasi Wahhabites, quasi Salafists, extremists, benighted, reactionary uh, people, misogynists. Uh, they were fostered primarily by the British through Egypt, because these Sanusis were useful against, in particular, the Italians, right when they when they took over uh, Libya uh, about a hundred years ago, the Italians came in. So the, the British began building up these, these, uh, Sanusis. And, and that's, uh, those are the people that, that, uh, Ambassador Stevens was in contact with. The question though is, since Stevens was such a good friend of so many of these people in the Benghazi, Derna, Tobruk area, why would they turn on him? Right? Why would they decide, at a certain point that they're going to kill their old friend? Um, it's also clear that, that one of the things he was probably doing, which he certainly had done in the past, is to arrange the shipping of these fanatics from Libya to Turkey and then their deployment into Syria, because that's how this was done. Gaddafi was dead by you know the autumn of last year. That uh, situation was winding down. The U.S., according to my information, organized uh, really an airlift and maybe a sea lift also, uh, of equipment to get those fighters, those Mujahideen jihadis from Libya to Turkey and then into into Syria, and that's the basis. Those are the death squads that have been the prime element going on in in uh, in the 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 fighting in Syria ever since. And the the story is that on the day he died, September 11th, Ambassador Stevens' last conversation at 8:30 in the evening was with a Turkish diplomat. So. Why would an American ambassador be talking to a Turkish diplomat in the middle of the biggest terror corridor in the world? And I'm, I'm afraid it, it does point in, the, in this direction. But this doesn't account for why he would be killed. As a matter of fact, that's an argument why he would have been safe. Now, the group that is uh, widely regarded as the people who killed him is called Ansar al-Sharia. So it's the, uh, the uh, Sharia Brigade. And the Ansar al-Sharia is led by a guy called Sufyan ben Kumu. Now, Kumu is either Q-U-M-U or K-U-M-U. Sometimes you'll even see G-U-M-U. But Kumu, Uh, he is the former uh, boss, one of the bosses, of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. That's an Al-Qaeda affiliate. Kumu was once the chauffeur. The driver for bin Laden, this guy's from Derna and the US government knows everything about him because he was held in Guantanamo Bay uh, prison camp for four to five years. He was uh, captured uh, and then uh, held until September 2007 when he was sent back to his native Libya. And then he was unwisely, very unwisely set free by Gaddafi in an amnesty in, in uh, 2010. Now, people have to understand, one of the reasons why Guantanamo still exists is that it's a prison camp, but it's also a training camp. And this is widely misunderstood. It is a training camp. Within it, you have brainwashing going on, you have courses, training, uh, and so forth. Generally speaking, once you're in Guantanamo Bay, the way you get out is to become a double agent working for the CIA. There was a guy called Shiri. Uh, who I think has just been killed in Yemen, the same story, uh, spends a couple of years in Guantanamo, is sent back, sets up Al-Qaeda, starts killing people, and then, uh, you know, then of course, the, 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 the countermeasures can sometimes kill them. But in the case of Kumu, Kumu, his forces are the ones that came and killed Ambassador Stevens. So here's the problem you have to answer. Why would a CIA double agent, a CIA asset, kill the american ambassador who was such a key guy in providing the troops right the the infantry really uh, from libya to turkey that they want to deploy into syria and they're in the middle of really desperately trying to get more because the ones they've sent in so far have been uh, decimated by the syrian army and they need they need reinforcements so that's really the the problem and th- that is what i would then say this points to the Mormon mafia, and the Mormon mafia simply means the faction that would do that, and I'm sure there are lots and lots of actual uh, card-carrying uh, Mormons in there. Now, the, the interesting story, uh, the Republicans are attempting to muddy the waters, right? Clearly, the, the Romney people, uh, first of all, they don't want any attention on the film, well, because they made the film, right? Their, their top foreign policy guy is up to his neck on the film. But they also don't really want any attention to what, what actually happened. Um, it's very interesting. According to Fox News, uh, three days after the uh, September 11th killings, we had none other than CIA Director General David Petraeus gave a briefing to the members of the House Intelligence Committee in which he said, this in Benghazi, this attack, was an out of control demonstration. It was a demonstration that went violent and they were there to protest the Islamophobic YouTube video, but it got out of hand and that's how uh, he explained it. Now, according to Fox News, the source that tells them that is shocked, they're shocked that the great General Petraeus is telling them this. So um, this is a very interesting problem. Petraeus is a darling, of these neocon networks who are absolutely on board with Romney. So you wonder, is Petraeus uh, helping Romney against Obama? I think he is. Uh, And you could say Petraeus is actually the source, right? What, What Biden claimed in the debate, right? Biden said, the intelligence community told us it was a demonstration that had gone violent. And indeed they did. And here's Petraeus documented three days after the fact, in the face of republican opposition sticking to a story that it was a demonstration that uh, that got out of hand the
0: point is here is that it, it wasn't a demonstration right
1: uh, no that I, this is a little bit harder to say and you said there's no demonstration at all that i don't know there might have been a demonstration at some point during the day but primarily the thing that killed the ambassadors not a demonstration and it's not people who lost their heads in a demonstration it's kumu and the ansar Al-Sharia, who are not there to demonstrate, these are killers. Now, um, here's another thing now, the security. Why didn't the ambassador have security, right? The Republicans obviously say Obama's responsible. First of all, this is crazy on the face of it. If anybody's responsible, it's Hillary Clinton. She's the Secretary of State, not Obama, right? Little, you know, personnel requests inside the State Department from diplomatic missions are not sent to the White House. This is absolutely off the wall. If you want, Hillary Clinton is the one. So uh, they're not interested in that because she's she's going to retire anyway. It's interesting that at the the uh, hearings held by the ISA committee, Darrell ISA, richest man in Congress apparently, uh, his leadoff witness was Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Wood of the Utah National Guard. How about that? Uh, as soon as you hear Utah— you have to figure it's either a Mormon or an ally of the Mormons. And what did, what did this interesting uh, lieutenant colonel Wood have to say? He said he had requested uh, reinforcements, right? He wanted more, more people sent there to defend the embassy. But it turned out from the testimony of other witnesses that the motivation, in other words, Wood never bothered to fill out the complete application, if you will. He never substantiated, right? What's the danger? And again, you have to look at it from their point of view. Here we're getting along great with these terrorists. Why do we have to worry? Well, of course you do. You do have to worry, but Wood would never made that clear. So I would I would discount the testimony of any Mormon. I'm afraid it is a very tight knit group, and uh, and they want uh, Romney. Now, the person who would have been responsible was um, Charlene Lamb, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Programs in the Diplomatic Security Bureau of the State Department. Now, this, this lady is a cop, and she, she brought along an interesting um, photograph. It's a, a commercial, commercially available satellite picture, probably Google Earth or something like this, which shows the U.S. consulate in Benghazi and surrounding areas. As soon as she brought this out, another Mormon went wild, and that's Congressman Jason Chaffetz, Chaffetz. This Chaffetz was touted by Issa as the prime mover of the whole demonstration. So Chaffetz starts yelling, point of order, point of order. These are classified materials. These are sources and methods, totally inappropriate. Shut it down. Take down this picture. And uh, Secretary Lamb said, oh, look, this is unclassified. This is off the Internet. No, no, no. Chaffetz goes wild. I was there in Libya They told me that I should never talk about what you're talking about here today. And first of all, ISIS says, leave it up. And then they whisper in his ear for for five minutes. And then he finally says, take it down. Now, what is it that's revealed? Well, what's revealed is that there's a CIA base uh, nearby, that one of these annexes is a CIA base. And it has some say seven, some say 12 um, highly trained. CIA operatives. Now, this is roughly the equivalent of the site security team, the SST, that this Mormon colonel I mentioned before said he requested. So the State Department didn't send it, but the CIA had it there anyway. Maybe that was the reason. They said, we don't need two. We already got one. So it's a. Uh, this is called a rapid response team rapid response force of seven to 12 members. And this is now the big question. If suppose it's a seven or 12 member CIA team, when the attack on Ambassador Stevens took place, where was the CIA rapid response force? Why didn't they fight? And they didn't, they were nowhere to be found. They were AWOL, they ran away. So here we have a CIA asset killing Ambassador Stevens and the nearest significant CIA asset, right, which is a it's quite a large team for some place like like Benghazi normally, they don't lift a finger to save his life. How about that? Do you smell a fault? You I know, think that's already highly interesting.
0: Well, it is very interesting, and I remember uh, I read about a lot of what you're talking about on the internet, about um, about this congressional hearing and this uh kerfuffle over these satellite photos. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the CIA, Mormon Mafia, and the Benghazi killings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about a nearby U.S. safe house uh, that did fight off an attack? Now, why wasn't Stevens there?
1: Uh, these are all good questions. The thing that I would add to this is, the existence of the CIA base was already in the public domain on September 23rd, New York Times article, Eric Schmidt, Helene Cooper, Michael S. Schmidt. They say when the U.S. personnel fled late on September 11th, when Stevens was already dead, a dozen, uh, two dozen American personnel leave Benghazi, including a dozen CIA operatives and contractors who had played a crucial role and so on and so forth. So they're already there uh, and they didn't contribute to helping him. Now, the other part of the security, this is also very interesting, on the the chart and, and announced publicly in these ISA hearings on Wednesday afternoon, there's something called the February 17th Martyrs Brigade. And we, we know who these people are. They are part of the uh, terror uh, uh, militias that were unleashed by NATO against Gaddafi starting in February of last year. They were, they actually had barracks. They, 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 some of them lived there permanently. They were supposed to be the first backup. In other words, there were some Libyan guards. There were some, uh, you know, other guards. There was a couple of seals and other, other things like this, uh, maybe even a couple of Marines. But we had the CIA off in one corner, and then we got the the Martyrs Brigade off in another corner. The interesting thing about the February 17th Martyrs Brigade is that they also have a track record of working for the CIA. And here's what it is. At the beginning of the Libyan fighting, uh, one important Gaddafi general went over to the rebels. And this is this guy, Yunus, Y-O-U-N-I-S, Y-O-U-N-E-S. And he became the military commander of the, of the rebels, uh, uh, sort of trying to go uh, from east to west, uh, you know, to get to, uh, to Tripoli. However, yes, I, I remember very, that. Now they assassinated him, right? Yeah. Very early on, another general by the name of Khalifa Hifter, Hifter or Hafter, H-I-F-T-E-R, H-A-F-T-E-R, was shipped over from Langley, from CIA headquarters. This is somebody who had been living in Vienna, Virginia, I think, you know, within a couple of miles of the Langley headquarters for a couple of years, he is somebody who says in a book that he published in France that uh, he had been paid by the CIA for operations against Gaddafi in the past. So Khalifa Hifter is the CIA candidate to become the, the commanding general of the, of the Libyan rebels. So he's also, he's shipped over there. And then what breaks out is a rivalry between Yunus, who had stayed in the country, served under Gaddafi, you know, other things going on, and Hafter or Hifter, who had been an expatriate, clearly working for the CIA. They clashed. And the solution to this was, at a certain point, the February 17th Martyrs Brigade assassinated, uh, assassinated Yunus and a couple of colonels on his staff cause they claimed that he had killed some of their relatives. And at that point, then the CIA candidate takes over. So this is a pretty good, again, prima facie case that the February 17th martyrs brigade is itself a CIA asset. So now look what we've got. The CIA asset Kumu comes to kill the ambassador. The CIA rapid response force runs away, does nothing, hides, we don't know. And the CIA asset February 17th Martyrs Brigade also does nothing. I don't know. If you're in the Democratic Party, I would think you'd make something out of this. Now, here's another interesting aspect to this thing. Uh, one of the things we've learned about the background of Ambassador Stevens comes from some strat emails that were somehow obtained by Al-Akbar, Al-Akbar newspaper of Beirut, Lebanon. And they're writing about a guy who... Uh, was hired by the U.S. He's a CIA veteran named James F. Smith. He's a former director of Blackwater, became the boss of SCG International, a private security firm. This is in Al-Akbar of March 19th of this year. They've got these emails from uh, Stratfor, intelligence uh, agency, that uh, that talk about this. Uh, So this is after the death of Gaddafi. Uh, Smith is sent by the U.S. government to talk to the Syrian opposition in Turkey. How can they help in regime change? And uh, this guy, James F. Smith, works together with Dr. Walid Phares. Now, Dr. Walid Fares, we mentioned him before. He is the Lebanese Maronite component, or one of them, of this Islamophobia network. He's featured in that report from the Center of uh, Center for American. Progress. Uh, and they work together with Congresswoman Sue Mirrick of North Carolina, uh, reactionary Republican Islamophobe, on how to uh, complete regime change in Syria. So uh, the interesting thing then is that Dr. Walid Faris is another top official of the Romney campaign. He is uh, on the, along with Bolton, he is a special advisor to Mitt Romney co-chair of Romney's Middle East advisory group. When his name was announced in October of last year, he was attacked by Mother Jones, by the Daily Beast, Politico Salon, New Republic, Al Jazeera, and so forth. Farès has boasted that Romney promised him a high-ranking White House job helping to craft U.S. policy in, in the Middle East uh, after 2012. Now, um... That's also interesting, in other words, you see the the people around Stevens who might have been you know knowledgeable about him, include some very, very very, very strange um, individuals and finally, I wanted to point out that when Hillary Clinton appeared to try to defend her department, I guess on Friday afternoon at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, she was introduced by none other than General Brent Scalcroft, the gray eminence of the Mormon mafia. So this is a powerful network and I think you can just see the this the connections right the institutional affiliations of the people that I've described the Mormon mafia appears as the prime suspect on the Benghazi side and this Islamophobia network dominated by John Bolton appears on the film side and you put those together and that's what has been I think playing a very important role in the presidential campaign, and that was the goal. An October surprise to carterize Obama and the people doing it, again, the CIA Mormon mafia. And look at, the, look at everything the CIA has to answer for in Benghazi. Why did Kumu, your asset, kill the ambassador? Why didn't that CIA rapid response force intervene? And what about your in-country assets, the February 17th martyrs brigade?
0: You have a new book out, Just Too Weird, Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America, Polygamy, Theocracy, and Subversion. I don't yet have a copy, but I understand that you view Mormonism as more of a political movement rather than a religion. How so?
1: Well, first of all, because um, it is founded uh, as two things that I think are of really great importance. One is... That Mormonism is not Christianity. It is a separate religion. It is not Judaism. It is not Christianity. It is not Islam. It is something clearly distinct from all three. Uh, and perhaps the easiest way to see that is on the question of polytheism. The the three religions of the book that I've just mentioned are all monotheistic. Mormonism, by contrast, is. A wild conjuries of polytheism. Uh, the gods in Mormonism are limitless, uh, and the whole status of God is um, radically different from in, the, in any of the the faiths that we've just uh, mentioned. Right? One of the the Mormon theological mottos is, uh, "As man now is, God once was," and this means God, meaning the chief God, the top God in the Mormon pantheon, and the pantheon is located on the planet Kolob, was once a flesh and blood human being like any of us, although only male. Um, But this uh, Elohim, or whoever he is, the the Mormon equivalent of Jehovah, is somebody who was once a, a flesh and blood man who worked his way up through, I guess, the practice of of Mormonism, Joseph Smith is another example of of exactly the same thing. So, as man now is, God once was, and as God now is, man can be. In other words, any male, and especially any male who gets at least three wives, I think is usually the cutoff, has a chance to become a god. In other words, the salvation, right? The um, what can we say? Soteriology, I think. The the, uh, notion of salvation in Mormonism is that if you make the grade through eternal progression, you too can become a god ruling over your own planet and enjoying the services of your celestial harem of spirit wives that will allow you to generate new spirits, which will have the chance then to become gods in their own right on other planets. Now, that is polytheism, um, and I would say that is uh, it's very disturbing because the the problem with polytheism is that polytheism is coherent with uh, a mental life in society um, which is probably antithetical to. Uh, modern civilization as we've known it. In other words, it's um, the polytheism belongs to an earlier phase of, uh, of human development, right? The monotheistic ones. And I guess the origins of monotheism is often, it's attributed to Akhenaten, right? In Egypt that he said, from now on, boys, it's going to be the sun's disc and nothing else, right? None of these semi-animalistic creatures that you have in the temples, right? One of the, Theses is that that then influenced moses or or the Hebrews or others, but you get the idea that we'd be taking a giant step backward to to polytheism, and I think anybody coming from Judaism, Islam, or Christianity would I think be able to see that right away. The notion of becoming a God, that you too can become a God is absolutely alien to any of those uh, traditions and these ideas that god is not a spirit but a fleshly being uh in in terms of christianity right the trinity the mormons say there is no trinity uh these are just three individuals who more or less work together there is no idea that god created the universe right you look at the christian creed which i include in my book just to make it clear right that uh If you believe in one God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, that's not the Mormon God. The Mormon God is somebody who arrives later. Christ arrives even later than that. And it's not a creator. It's more like a manager or a coordinator. Uh, And it's very strange. It's also festooned with Freemasonic elements. Um, One of the things you have to be ready for in Mormonism is that you better die with the magic underwear on, right? The magic underwear, the temple garments that Romney wears. I mean, you can see it. You can see some pictures on, of, of him out on the trail. He's wearing the, the typical undershirt of the, uh, of the magic underwear. Uh, that underwear is festooned with Freemasonic symbols, hex signs, and other things that are supposed to speed you on your way. And by the time you get to your appointment there in the other world, you better have the handshake, and you better know the passwords, because that, that is the, the basis of your salvation. So you can see, that's not Christianity at all, and and, and and not the other monotheistic religions.
0: I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the CIA Mormon Mafia and the Benghazi Killings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: The other interesting thing is the prominence of revenge. Um, Joseph Smith is obsessed with revenge. Brigham Young wants revenge. Uh, Brigham Young is, is the most, uh, extreme. Brigham Young's thesis is the American people committed deicide, right? They rejected Joseph Smith. They wouldn't bow down to him. They wouldn't make him their ruler, president, uh, and King. The Mormons made him king of the kingdom of God in 1844. The Americans then, uh, a mob killed him. And of course, it's outrageous that he was killed by a mob. But out of this, Brigham Young derives the idea that what is needed is blood atonement, which means human sacrifice. That's what it means, that some people have to die to wash away uh, the guilt of having killed Joseph Smith. Now in Christianity, you would say, well, the sacrifice of Christ is, you know, it, it, it far outweighs any of the sins of humanity put together. So we, you know, this part is done. That would be St. Anselm of Canterbury, but no, uh, under Mormonism, since it was done to Joseph Smith and the Mormons, it's beyond all measure. And that means people have to die. So blood atonement, and I guess i better get right to the heart of the matter. Until about 1927, right after the death of Joseph Smith. So from the time of Brigham Young in the mid-1840s until about 1927, the liturgy of the Mormon temple, in other words, the divine service, what they call the uh, temple endowment, included a blood-curdling pledge to exact revenge, and that means kill, People from the United States, i.e. Americans, Gentiles, as they would say, to get revenge for what was done to Joseph Smith and indeed his brother Hiram Smith at the uh, the jail in Carthage, Illinois, in June of, of 1844. And that means that Governor George Romney, from the time he was born, you know, in the early part of the last century, say for his first uh, 20 years easily, was reciting this blood oath, which binds four generations according to the internal features of the oath. So that would mean George Romney, Mitt Romney, Tag Romney, and Tag's kids are all bound by the oath of exacting blood revenge from the United States. Uh, I don't think it's wise to put somebody in the White House who comes from this kind of a religious tradition and who has never repudiated it. And in the case of Romney, it's quite the contrary. Uh, I've seen two books here by Romney, One is his book, uh, Turnaround, which is his self-congratulatory story of saving the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics of 2002. Well, what he was doing out there was covering up for Mike Levitt, the Mormon governor of Utah, who is today Mitt Romney's transition boss and is considered the likely White House chief of staff for Mitt Romney. Uh, Mitt went out there to protect Levitt from going to jail. For corruption and other top Mormons, perhaps even the top officials of the Mormon church might've been involved in the international bribery, right? Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. They gave out at least a million dollars worth of bribes and, and probably more, um, Romney went out there to do that. So he writes this book about uh, turnaround, right? How he turned it around. And in that book, he says, my relatives had to flee to Mexico to flee religious persecution. Well, I'm sorry. There was no religious persecution at that point in the 1880s except polygamy. Uh, polygamy was banned. And the Mormon argument was, you can't uh, stop us from having polygamous marriages because th- those are our religious rights, our First Amendment religious rights under the Constitution. And of course, this is is a f- specious argument because... Uh, The the First Amendment protects belief, you know, divine services, worship, all this stuff. But when you get into the area of overt acts, then those fall under the purview of the civil magistrate. In other words, the public law. And you can't say, well, my religion says polygamy is, is required. You might as well say, my religion says widow burning is required or. Uh, with Brigham Young, you could say my religion requires human sacrifice. If somebody comes forward and says, "I demand the right to have human sacrifice because my religion commands me," at that point, the modern state has to say, "No, sorry, that's an overt act, and it's illegal." Later on, in in Romney's other book about um, no apologies, right, that he he'll never apologize, uh, unlike I guess he claims Obama apologizes. I don't know. Uh, in the same, he has the same the same idea, that it was religious persecution that drove his family to flee the United States. Now, this is very embarrassing for him, because what it shows is when it comes to Romney family values, patriotism to the United States is trumped by polygamy. Polygamy is infinitely more important than, uh, than patriotism to the United States. This is a big problem for him, because he, he's got to come on as a hyper-patriotic, super-chauvinistic, in-your-face... Uh, you know, flag-waving, constitution-thumping patriot. And you look at the history, nobody in his family was ever in the military, right? They never served the United States Army. You know, they're chicken hawks. I mean, they, you can choose not to do that, but then please don't be a warmonger at the same time, right? This was the argument against the neocons, and it is against the Mormons, right? So Romney, all of his sons, their kids, no, but nobody ever Volunteered. What they do do is go go abroad to become uh, missionaries for the Mormon Church. So, we look at Levitt, uh, in, in not just Romney, but this guy Mike Levitt. Here's the rundown on Mike Levitt in a nutshell. He's implicated in the corruption of the 2002 Mormon uh, Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. He was asked uh, in the build-up to those Olympics. There was a lot of attention to polygamy, right? Because this put this put Utah under the spotlight. And he was asked, uh, well, what do you think about polygamy? And his answer was the same. He said, I think polygamy may be covered by religious freedom. Oh my gosh. If you ask Senator Hatch of Utah, he will tell you the same thing, that some of his best friends are polygamists and there's a whole polygamous colony on the border between Utah and uh, Arizona. It's called Hilldale, Utah and Colorado City, Arizona. This was the area controlled by Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs was the prophet of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints Church. And if you go to Colorado City, Arizona, the mayor is a polygamist, the chief of police is a polygamist, the city council are all polygamists, the fire chief is polygamist. This is horrendous. And, and what it means is, it means rape. It means the statutory rape of young girls. Uh, that's, you know, in a nutshell, what it, what it comes down to. Um, And this, this is bipartisan, by the way, Janet Napolitano, when she was governor of Arizona, she never lifted a finger against these polygamous uh, communities. Uh, And the same thing goes for Bruce Babbitt, who was in the Clinton cabinet or Fife Symington, or others. At the end of one of my chapters on polygamy, I quote Penny Peterson, who is an anti polygamy activist in Arizona. And she says to get away with the rape of young girls. All you have to say is that you're a polyg or plig, meaning polygamist out, out in, these, in these areas. Now, one of the things that a Romney presidency would bring, and you can see it, is a massive upsurge of polygamy because the proclivity to enforce any of these laws would, would instead of being zero, it become negative. I mean, we could probably see, you know, tax incentives for, uh, for polygamists. So this, uh, this is uh, what it comes down to now. Well, let me ask you
0: this. What is the status of women under a policy of polygamy?
1: Let me, let me just, I just have to go back to this, the, the, the political side, but okay. m- maybe we want to do polygamy That's first. Um, if we look at um, newspaper accounts, right? The one thing you see in, in uh, the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, and 70s is that the Mormon uh, paradise of Utah, Deseret, as they called it, right? And it was designed to be an independent country. It was designed to be uh, an enemy state against the United States. That was how it was designed. Um, You'll see that this is one of the biggest international scandals in the world. And you've got all sorts of people writing about um, Brigham Young, And his wives, right, Brigham Young probably had 75 wives. Joseph Smith, the low estimate is he had about 35 wives. The high estimate is about 85 wives. Middle estimate, about 55 wives. Um, One of the big themes is women who have been more or less kidnapped and taken to Salt Lake City and who want to get out. And some of them can't get out. One One of the cases we have here is, um, I guess this is after the Civil War already, but uh, a guy called Andrus, right? You'll recognize him in these names, Andrus, right? That was, and Andrus became Secretary of the Interior, I think, under Kennedy. So here's Milo Andrus. He has 11 wives. One of them begins objecting to polygamy. She's planning to escape from Salt Lake City. Andrus goes to Brigham Young. What should he do? And Brigham Young says, the only way to save the sister's soul was to cut her throat. So the woman falls on her knees begging for life. Andrus cuts her throat from ear to ear and holds her in an iron grip until she stops struggling. That's actually pre, pre-Civil War. Um, you've got a lot of people saying you know, that, that polygamy is essentially slavery for women. And remember, it goes on for quite a while you know, if if slavery is basically wiped out between 1865 and 1870 or 1863 and 1870, since we do have the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the polygamy goes on at least into the 1890s and really much longer because a lot of those marriages uh, continue. Uh, It preserves the plantation system, and this is the way it would work. Southern Utah, where the Romney family lived, is the most backward. And here the typical thing would be a poor Mormon farmer with five to six wives. And the, what it became was the wives would be the field hands and the Mormon farmer would be the overseer. But then we gotta, we gotta think about also uh, polygamy. Let's, let's start with maybe Joseph Smith, the prophet, right? Son of God, as he would say, or God. Uh, some of his spirit wives or celestial marriages uh, as he would say some of his celestial relations were with married women so this means for him it was polygamy but then from the point of view of the woman this is polyandry in other words one woman who has her normal husband and Joseph Smith so polyandry uh, also a, um, a you know very problematic uh, relation, not heard of at all really in Western civilization, nor is, um, nor is, is polygamy with very, very few exceptions. Then later on, you have a Mormon polygamist would marry a woman and with the idea that he's going to marry her daughters, one or two daughters, as soon as they get to a certain age. And in one, uh, one case, we have a, a, a little girl who says her plan in life is to marry pa, so she's going to marry her father. Uh, this is not good. Another case, uh, we have a Mormon polygamist who marries a woman and her granddaughter. So they're both going to go into the harem and become uh, celestial spirit wives. So, um, well, what can we say? One of, one of Brigham Young's daughters, in a moment of candor, says that if, uh, if Salt Lake City had a roof it would be the biggest whorehouse in the world. And it's chaos. I mean, it's the it's, um, it's situation of antinomianism. And I guess that's, that's really a very, very key uh, concept. One of the basic ideas of Mormonism is that the end of the world is near and the saints are exempt from the normal moral law.
0: I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been the CIA Mormon Mafia and the Benghazi Killings. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, the Postmodern Coup, the Making of a Manchurian Candidate, Obama, the Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. His new book, Just Too Weird, Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America, Polygamy, Theocracy, and Subversion, is available online from ProgressivePress.com. That's ProgressivePress.com. An ebook version is also available. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T A R P L E Y.net. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G.
2: Hey, yo! is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all you understand what i'm saying this is a call for all you sleeping souls wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout